Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the program, we welcome Assistant Portfolio Manager at Fidelity Global Financial Services Fund, Lee Sotos, as he dives into the financial sector and gives an overview of the effect of regulations on banks. He says the regulations involve increasing capital by 20% in risk-weighted assets to slow lending. Banks are adapting to higher regulation, but are not completely closed off to lending. They are exploring other forms of income and deposits, and just not focusing on loans. Regional banks are trying to keep up and compete with larger banks. They face extra macroprudential regulation if they have over $100 billion in assets. They participate in more stress tests and follow more liquidity rules. He adds that there are opportunities in the banking sector, especially for banks with stable deposit bases and better capital situations, and big banks offer diversification in deposits, loan books, and revenues. Lee points out that despite the potential risks of higher rates or credit losses, banks are already reserving for credit issues, positioning themselves well for any downturn. This podcast was recorded on July 28, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. We're going to talk about earnings. We're going to talk about lots of different pieces. There's still fear out there about recessions, even though we hear a lot about soft landings. Um, So I don't really know. No one really seems to exactly know. But tell us, how would banks, for instance, do would a recession just be awful for banks actually i i I think when you think about what we've seen over the last six months um most of the issues really have come from rates going up and you know securities portfolios being underwater and problems like that um the, the fact of the matter is that banks haven't had to deal with asset liability management issues for i don't know like 50 years um, and so it's not entirely surprising that some of those issues kind of came to the fore. Um, what banks are still good at is, and where their muscle memory is quite strong, is on credit. And so, you know, when you think about a downturn and the potential for rates to actually come down over time, that would maybe alleviate some of the stress on some of these bank securities portfolios. and. In most cases, so recession would be lower rates would be kicked in, right? right. Hypothetically, and and so you know that that has a potential to alleviate some of the securities portfolio issues. Yeah. Plus, I mean, banks are already kind of reserving for the next problems, and so you know I look at a recession, and besides some areas like commercial real estate where we can also you know, pinpoint where some of the issues are and which banks maybe um, are kind of overloaded on commercial real estate. But in general, um, I would prefer banks dealing with credit issues 
versus some of the issues that they haven't dealt with for a long time. Right, really, really interesting. What do you think of earnings? I mean, we've seen the big, big banks. This is the U.S., you know, the two bigs to fails. We've seen those come in. Uh, what were your thoughts broadly on, on the numbers, but also on sort of some of the commentary? I, I think when you just look at the numbers, roughly half the banks beat earnings, half the banks miss. Um, the common theme is still around deposit flows, um, not only just the flows into and out of a bank, but the mix shift between non-interest bearing deposits and interest bearing deposits. And so those banks that had healthier deposit flows um, with maybe a little bit of loan growth actually tended to produce pretty decent earnings. Um, in addition, their net interest margins or sort of the margin they make on loans versus deposits um, stayed relatively healthy. Now, there's a lot of banks though, you know, just given the fact that we are in sort of this quantitative tightening um, situation where a lot of banks are, are struggling to keep their deposit flows on a positive basis. And I mean, if you look at the industry, deposits were down slightly uh, on the quarter, but you know, what they're trying to do is also manage the rate paid on their interest bearing deposits. And where you see some differential is those banks that have to pay up a little more for the deposits versus those banks that, you know, have maybe a little more steady deposit uh, pricing. And so what do we make of the regulations that so far have been announced? We've had Jabbar, that's about a week and a half ago, I think, sort of rolling out a whole bunch of, what are they aiming at that you think is most important to investors? So the, I, I think you kind of want to bucket things in, in two buckets. So there's the GSIBs, which are the largest banks. Um, and for those banks, what you're really seeing is sort of just more capital. Um, you know, essentially Vice Chair Barr, what he proposed was um, another 20% kind of inflation in, in risk-weighted assets, um, which doesn't attract higher capital levels, but just more capital per dollar of assets. Um, Does so it slow down lending? It, it certainly could at the margin. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, I, I think you, you've also seen banks have, have to adapt to higher regulation over the years. So I, I think, you know, your average bank is still gonna be open for lending at the same token. Um, one thing we did hear a lot from banks this quarter, which I thought was interesting, was many more talking about relationships and trying to get other forms of income or get the deposit, not just the loan, um, which is something we've always believed in. But you know, I, I think right now when, when banks maybe are looking at higher capital levels, then they're more willing to sort of go out to the market to talk about that. Um, Is that the second bucket? The second bucket would be the regional banks. Okay. And so any, you know, the, the Fed has now defined any bank over $100 billion in assets as, you know, needing kind of extra macro potential regulation, right? And kind of putting them in the same area as the biggest banks. And so... For these regional banks, when you look at some of the weaknesses that took place earlier in the year, they will have to do things that the largest banks already have been doing. So recognizing securities gains and losses against their um, regulatory capital 
or mark to market essentially essentially well, it, it goes against capital so yeah. it's not you know trading it depends on how you bucket your securities so if you put them in a trading designation then it's a mark to market through your income statement everything else would go through capital um, or at least available for sale, but then you still have held to maturity and that's an entirely different thing. Um, but now they'll have to recognize um, securities losses, particularly uh, against their um, regulatory capital. They will also likely have to issue more unsecured debt, which will support their holding companies in the event of a bankruptcy. They will also have to um, take part in the stress test more often. So there, there's been a skip a year type of thing. Um, and then there'll be more liquidity rules. And so, you but know. How many will um, be able to withstand this ultimately? I mean, I, banks are incredibly adaptable over okay. the long term. And so I don't think it's the question of we can't adapt. We can't, you know, we, we, we can't, you know, make it to the, this next level of, of regulation, it's what is it going to cost? Mm -hmm. And when you look at sort of long-term returns or ROE or ROTCE over the long term, you know, the question we have as an investor is what is this going to cost you in terms of profitability over the long right. term? So, so, uh, so I guess some are going to cost too much over the long term and some less so. And yes. you analyze this to, to figure out which which will do better. I mean, have there been, there's been some baby out with the bathwater type action and therefore there have been some buying opportunities since March bank blow ups, wobbles, whatever we're gonna call all that. Yes. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I think if you look back to last year, um, you know, the, the banking sector itself and particularly the regional banks, um, you know, Early in, in 2022, before lot, rates hiked, right as rates were hiking, a lot of investors put on kind of a pro rates trade, right, and and they essentially were buying regional banks for the leverage to um, rates going up. Eventually, you kind of get to a point where investors worry more about the next rate rise kind of crushing the economy, and in that scenario those regional banks stop working, right? The next rate rise isn't necessarily a good thing, even if their margins are expanding because people get worried about six months or a year from now. Um, so you, you take that scenario where they were already kind of topping out and then you add in what happened in March and all of a sudden you had, you know, a fairly significant downdraft in the banks. You know, certainly as you look at banks and you, you know, evaluate who has a more stable deposit base, who, you know, has a better capital situation, there certainly is opportunities that have come up over the last couple months. Yeah, fascinating. Let's go uh, just sort of uh, basically what you saw banks have to adjust to. I was, I was taken by the word relationship there when you when you mentioned that. Um, there's been lots of articles lately about how we shouldn't close all the bank branches and maybe the relationship thing isn't such a uh, thing that we need to digitize. And I, I'm actually kind of curious genuinely about how the deposits stop moving around so easily. This, this has been, again, 
a headline, maybe it's nothing, but you're the person to ask. <laughs> it, it was argued that it was very easy to just move your deposits to another bank. If you were at a regional bank, you were worried, you can open up an account at one of the big ones. Is that true? Was that was that a real piece of the story? Yeah, I, I, I think it was. And I, I think um, investors, banks and regulators are still figuring that out. Um, I think, you know, um, I, I was in the market and, and was a bank analyst uh, during the time of the financial crisis. And, you know, you saw banks fail, but it took place in slow motion compared to today. And you know, I, I think the biggest difference is just the speed of transmission. And I mean, you had banks failing within, you know, a day or two. Right. Which I mean, we how do you slow that down? That before. I mean, part of it is structural, right? I mean, part of, you know, what we saw in some of those banks, you know, one was, you know, investor concerns over securities losses. So that, that part is well known. But, you know, when I look at the banks that were under pressure. A lot of it to do with very non-diversified deposit bases. Right. You had highly concentrated deposit bases, which tended to move fairly quickly and en masse. When you look at bigger banks and even some of the bigger regional banks, very diversified deposit bases. And you know, it's very unlikely that you know all of those deposits are going to come to the same conclusion at the same time. And so I think from a structural standpoint, you know, I have always favored those banks that I believe have significant diversification, whether it's in their loan book or deposit book or just in, in the revenue sources as well. Does that mean the big banks? Yes, not exclusively, mm -hmm. but, you know, I, I think we've had a preference historically for the big banks, um, you know. One is that diversification impact, right? So you have diversification of deposits and loan books, which also helps smooth out your credit performance when you have cycles. You also have significant diversification in, in revenues, right? And totally. also a lot of fee income. And fee income, you know, is what really bolsters ROEs and, and, and returns at banks. Um, just lending and just spread-based banks become very beholden to the yield curve. And, you know, uh, they, they lose a bit of control over kind of the, the revenue sources, right? Um, when I look at a lot of lending, a lot of it is more or less cost of capital type of return. It is that relationship and that ability to get, you know, more business um, out of that client that's really gonna kind of drive returns. The larger banks, and have to that. have that, you know, more. So, so when you say, you know, the the fee side of it is attractive from an investment perspective, yes. does that just does that equal wealth management? Wealth management is certainly one huge area, right? And and you know, we definitely um, like those banks that have wealth management as as part of their business mix, and it's a very profitable business mix. Um, you also have payments, um, which is a big portion and also highly profitable. You also have treasury management where essentially um, a corporate client might outsource some of their working capital needs and some of their payments, you know, they, they kind of intersect with payments to a bank, um, manage, you know, interest rate risk or foreign exchange risk, things like that. 
payments are the cards, but like, or, or whether it's cards or at the corporate level, you know, even just shooting off payments, you know, and helping manage kind of almost the, the working capital function. Okay. That's so interesting. Um, tell us a little bit more about, let's go back to the regulations just a little bit. I mean, what I understood is there was sort of a, a trading desk component that was going to come into this. Yes. Um, again, is that small fish to fry or is that something that investors actually should pay attention to? I, I think it's relatively small compared to what we've already experienced, okay. right? So coming out of the financial crisis, I mean, essentially you have seen bank capital levels double. And so, you know, since then, what we are seeing now in the new regulations is certainly going to impact um, at the margin certain businesses. So what you might see is banks that um, are maintaining certain businesses that might, might not make cost of capital or barely make cost of capital now will have to reassess some of those trading businesses. Um, because, you know, the, there, there's two kinds of capital um, things coming down for, for, for the larger banks. One is Basel III Endgame, which right. has been in the works for, for many years. Since the financial crisis. Yes. Right. Um, the U.S. is a little slow to adapt to some of these okay. things. Um, <laughs> And, and then fundamental review of the trading book, and that's kind of what you're referring to, where banks will go kind of desk by desk and reassess kind of the, the capital requirements of each trading desk. The view is, you know, when you combine Basel III with the fundamental review, and also we will see operational risk, which was not part of kind of bank capital calculations. It, it was for one, but not sort of the binding constraint. As all this kind of gets wrapped in, I think there are some businesses where liquidity could be a little more challenged in, in the trading side. Maybe not the major businesses because those are sort of beachhead types of things, but you know, some ancillary products may go by the wayside. Yeah, interesting. It, I mean, it's sort of that question of how the money makers are, are able to do what they do. I mean. I, also heard sort of anecdotally about Fed being more of a money maker. Like I'm just wondering if that whole world changes a little bit. Certainly a little bit. It still is very early, yeah. right? Um, a lot of the proposals, you know, all the proposals just came out yesterday. I think one one thing I thought was very interesting, which I hadn't seen recently, is when I watched the the, the Fed open session and talking about the new rules you actually saw fairly strong dissent from some of the, the Fed governors. Um, two in particular were, were dissenters, and even Chairman Powell was balanced in the way he was talking about some of these capital rules. And so, you know, kind of talking about the impact on the economy and, and the balance that's needed. So I wouldn't be surprised. Remember, these are going to go out for comment until about Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And then the final rule won't be until about a year from now. And then the adoption phase is 2025 to 2028. So it's a pretty long track. Right. And we may see some watering down and we may see, you know, banks just proactively start to adapt to different things. So interesting. Um, when you uh, woke up this morning and saw that Japan 
well, we don't know if they've kiboshed their yield control um, program, but it's certainly a conversation in the markets that maybe they did. What'd you think of that? I'm just dying to ask someone what they <laughs> thought of that because I thought that was a pretty big move. I, I think it's interesting in for two ways. One, you know, you you sort of look at okay, what does this mean for the global system? Because Japan has certainly been a net investor outside of Japan for a long time. And can this, you know, I think the the initial market reaction has been that they will be pulling money back to Japan. And so, right. you know, I, I think that certainly has some implications for global yields. I don't want to overstate it because there's lots of buyers out there. But at the same token, you know, it, you know, we'll have to watch sort of U.S. yields and if this does have kind of a more permanent impact. Um, also, you know, I, I, I think just in looking at Japanese banks, maybe they become more interesting. I mean, you have kind of a banking sector that has been um, shackled with zero rates right. forever. And now maybe you can kind of come up with some, you know, a view that normal rates aren't necessarily going to be zero forever. And maybe you end up with profitability levels that are a little more attractive over time. So that's Japan. And there's sort of global stories to go along with that. But if, if we sort of get back to, to the U.S. story right now, just, just kind of remind us where we go from here. So a year ago, we thought that net interest margins, because interest rates would go up, would just be the greatest story right. ever, um, or at least that was a narrative in the markets. It kind of did, and then it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Now here we are. Mm -hmm. What does higher rates, maybe not this high forever, but higher rates, where do we go from here? We cleared out all the, the fog, and now actually that works? I mean, I, I, I think right now the market and banks are in this uneasy truce, right? And so the focus is far less on the securities losses um, that were the focus of attention back in March and April. Um, part of that is because rates seem to be, you know, the U.S. 10-year around 4%. It doesn't seem to be charging up to 5% um, and extending those securities losses. Um, and with the Fed coming out with this very long lead time to compliance, um, you know, essentially you're looking at something five years from now, and most of these securities portfolios will have turned over and the, sort of the pull to par on these securities will plug the gaps. Then, you know, you have to sort of say, okay, then what are the opportunities? I mean, if rates go up, maybe a bad thing, maybe slightly more tail risk, rates go down with a recession or kind of a downturn, Maybe not so bad for securities portfolios, but credit losses are, are kind of increasing. Um, I see two opportunities. One, the banks are already reserving. And so hmm. they're already kind of getting ahead of any credit issues. And so if you kind of take some sort of a downturn as a base case, um, I think banks are in better shape than, than what people think. Um, and also, I, I think very importantly, um, the regulators seem to be softening their stance on M&A. And, you know, I think consolidation over the long term is key for the U.S. financial system. I mean, the, the sort of the view that banks shouldn't get together and make more too big to fail banks, I, I, I sympathize with that. At the same token, 
all you end up doing is, in my opinion, is, you know, increasing the competitive advantages of the largest banks if you don't allow smaller banks to kind of come together and compete, get greater scale and, and, you know, have a greater ability to Fascinating. Lee, thoughts on U.S. banks relative to global banks, uh, Canadian banks, in terms of bank earnings, but also the dividend story? The dividend story is interesting because U.S. banks have historically not been huge dividend payers. Here, they're almost like bonds, we joke. Right. Yes. Um, Maybe I shouldn't say that, but that is, <laughs> I mean, it is sort of a, a, a way people look at the dividends. Well, and, and they do actually everywhere except for the U.S. And I, I think the U.S. became less dividend-centric after the financial crisis. Right. And the Fed has actually kind of given a preference to buybacks because they can be shut off so quickly versus dividends, right? right. And so, you know, the banks in the U.S. probably still see healthy dividend growth. Although, you know, a lot will depend on these regulations in that if you do have this sort of 20% more risk-weighted assets per dollar of assets, banks will be slightly in a capital build situation. And so you may not see dividends grow quite as quickly, or you may not see buybacks in kind of the same, you know, measure that you have in the past. When we look at um, banks around the world, Everywhere is in different stages as far as rates right now. And I think the U.S. probably is the closest to rates sort of rolling over, right? And so in some ways, I I think that when you look at whether it's Canadian banks or banks in Asia or around the world, I think there's still little room for that rate trade to play itself out. but, you know, I think what we're trying to do as we look at the portfolio is stay broadly diversified right. and okay. not necessarily want to play kind of one, you know, individual country's rate, you know, rate regime versus another country's. Because I, I, I think that, you know, you ultimately you are just sort of... a lot of currency in there, too. Right. right? I mean... And, and, you know, we're, we're looking more for sort of long sort of think about things. But... We want to stay broadly diversified either way. In terms of um, the way positioning looks most interesting to you, so we haven't actually cracked into insurance and, and a lot of other parts of, of the overall financials, but but let's just spend a couple of minutes there. Like what what is coming down the pike for for other parts of the financials uh, universe? Yeah, I mean we find insurance very interesting um, in that you know particularly in the U.S. and and here in Canada. I mean, you do have, you know, various degrees of hardening cycles still going on. So pricing remains attractive, um, you know, but what we've also seen recently is, you know, you look at kind of reinsurers and some of the reinsurers have talked about pricing maybe peaking and all of a sudden the stocks aren't working quite as well. And so, you know, it, we don't want to get tied to just a, a hardening cycle or something cyclical. Um some of the, the major themes we really like are, you know, themes like wealth, wealth creation, whether it's, you know, in the U.S., Canada or rest of the world. Right. Um, you know, major themes that we think about or payments and, okay. you know, a little bit of fintech in there. Um, and, you know, really what we want to play various themes or, or concentrate on various themes over the long term 
and then you know also look look to pick our spots um you know for some of the the shorter term things the at1 bonds are the bonds where ultimately the equity players and owners are are first and therefore the bond holders are not as secure if this was the swiss banking story Mm -hmm. uh the question is uh was so da, 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 um, any comments basically on that? like it was controversial are we burnt forever will we go back to those i mean people knew the covenants they signed no yeah i i mean this is in particular you know particular to uh european financials to some degree and you know the construct of those bonds was always you know um, in, in, it's interesting because I also cover the U.S. financials on the credit side and sort, sort of look at their capital stacks. And I, I always found the, the European um, construct a little bit confusing compared to the U.S. And I, I think what we saw with Credit Suisse most likely is a one-off situation. But at the same token, I I think, you know, bond investors feel rightfully burned in some ways that, you know, equity maybe kind of did better than expected, right? And so, you know, I think the regulators have to be quite aware, but, you know, it was really the Swiss regulators that kind of, you know, Allowed. made those decisions, yeah. right? Yeah, okay, fascinating. I, it was just interesting to get your points uh, on that because it, it is um, it was one of those wow moments. Yes. <laughs> Lee Sotos, thank you very, very much for joining us in studio in Toronto to talk about financials. We look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you. Good weekend. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.